What's up, everyone? This is Josh, co-founder of Urban Valor. Welcome to another episode of the Urban Valor podcast. Our guest today is Army Sergeant First Class Umar Arastia. As of this interview, he's served 23 years in the National Guard with the last 13 years being on active duty. Umar talks about his experience in the Army and being overseas in combat. However, he wanted to speak mostly about his late son, Jabril Arastia, who passed away in 2020 while enlisted into the Navy. Umar was out celebrating the completion of a course he attended for the army when he received a call from his wife telling him Jabril had taken his life. This tragic incident left Umar seeking answers to what drove his son into such a dark place with no clear signs of him being in distress. If you enjoyed this episode, go give us a five-star rating and leave a comment to help support our veterans. The bigger the community, the bigger the impact. If you'd like to contribute your story to Urban Valor and know anyone else who may, reach out to us on Instagram at Urban Valor TV or you could email us at team at urbanballer.com. Enjoy the show. Yeah, my name is Umar Rastia. I've been in the Massachusetts National Guard for 23 years. Uh, I'm currently on active duty. AGR with the National Guard have been for about 13 years. I'm a, currently a military policeman. I did 10 years right out of high school as a regular part-time soldier. And I chose the National Guard really, from, out of high school I chose it because I knew people who were in the Guard. Yeah. Right? And... uh it was seemed like the best of all the worlds. I get to be military, do military training, see cool things, use cool toys, uh, and none of that's wrong. But uh, it just uh, I just never really took advantage of it as a young man. I was just too too scatterbrained, or whatever. So second time around, the charm. I went back into the military as like as a guardsman. <clears throat> came back in as an E4. I had left AHS as an E5. So I came back in as a four and had to kind of get my rag back because it had been too long. Or so came back and uh, they brought me on as a full-time recruiter. AGR, Active Guard Reserve. So that was cool because I'm basically living an active duty life at home in a place where I don't have to PCS, you know, and my family and all that kind of stuff. So they, we kind of joke that AGR is like the best kept secret in the National Guard. Hmm. You, know, you get to, it really is the best of all, of all the worlds. What's AGR stand for? Active Guard Reserve. Okay. So all those National Guard armories and units you see all over the place, there are some full-timers in each of those, right? There's a an admin guy, a supply guy, and a training management guy. that They're there all the rest of the month when the part-timers aren't, right? They make sure things are people are getting paid and everything's where it's supposed to be and ready to go for the next training assembly. So anyway, at the time I was a recruiter, an HR recruiter. And uh, long story short, you know, deployments come around and I go out the door a couple of times on deployment. The benefit was because we were so isolated and we had so little, uh, you know, we were operating completely, almost autonomously in, in order Afghanistan, you know, kind of independent, something that when I tell people about that, they just, they kind of don't believe it. And I don't think it was meant to be that way. It just kind of worked out that way. You know, it was like 13 American soldiers was attached to a Korean PRT, um, subordinate to an Air Force PRT, like second tier. And you know, our job was to just do presence patrols and combat patrols and, and just escort our civilian agencies to various meetings all over the place, all over the, we were in Parwan, it was, we were all over the province, you know, some civil affairs guys that we'd kind of take around to go check on projects and stuff, but it was almost completely independent. Like we planned our own mission, you know, logistically and laid on what we needed to and executed. Uh, that was really cool because we didn't have a lot of restriction, uh, but the downside is we didn't really have any QRF either. It's, we had to be really, really careful, and we had some really, really, we got some ticks, and had to figure it out. Yeah. There was just 13 of you? Yeah. And 15. Wow. Just 13, squad plus, you know. Where is the nearest uh, other friendly unit? So there, we were in Charakar, so Kabul was like an hour south of us, I think. Mm. And then there was a small fob about 45 minutes north of us, but it was very small. I forget the detachment that was there. 
um, and they weren't uh, really capable of providing QRF for us. Something happened particularly because a lot of times our missions, uh, Charkar is kind of on the east of the, the province, and a lot of our missions were way out west, like the Wild West, literally, like three, four hours, five hours, one road in a valley, you know, yeah. all the way out. So if something went down out there, which did happen, you know, we were kind of on our own to figure out how to exfil and plan accordingly and just be really, try to be cautious as well. Did you guys ever find yourself in any intense situations out there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had a, a couple of situations where <laughs> that we were receiving, you know, harassing fire, but we were out in the open, you know, and we had to park our vehicles. We were walking. Um, so we wound up moving two or three clicks. I think maybe it might have been like three and a half clicks uh, in a ravine back to where our vehicles were stationed because they couldn't get to us and we were taking harassing fire the entire time. It wasn't an all-out ambush or anything, but it was tough to be under that kind of pressure the entire time and just really, really be cautious. And it's a, what do you do, right? Do you slow roll or do you just rush it? Yeah. Right? That's what it was another time we were actually in the city. You know, it's just a classic situation where they say, don't do the same thing at the same time in the same way. Um, but our, our civilians had a meeting with the local governor, governor, like every Monday at his compound. And we were always like, man, can we change this? Can we change when this is and how we get there? And, and there's really no other routes we could take because it was in the city. You know, we could alter it a little bit, but it would only change it by maybe a half a mile. And exactly what we thought was happen would happen was going to happen. Funny, I just told a story about, you know, that saying, uh, presence of the normal, absence of the normal, right? So you hear the stories in Moab site when you're training that, you know, you know what the, what the area is like, the village you're going to work in, you know what people are like, and if people scatter, something's up. And you hear it, and you don't really understand what that means. But then when you get in theater, and you see what people are like normally, and you see the town and the village, and you see all the women with the, with the blue burkas on, and they're always out everywhere. And I was, I was in the turret of the first truck of our convoy. I was my PL's gunner. And uh, we're going in literally about a couple hundred meters from the governor's compound, which is like in the city, in the middle of the, of the city, Charakar. And I'm noticing all of the women are disappearing. And literally, like, you can see it happen. It's like, everyone's gone. And I'm like, I'm over comms, like, you know, something wrong, something wrong, six, something's wrong. And, uh, he was like, okay, well, we got to drop our civilians off. Right. So, and that was, it was a fast movement. We got to the compound and we dropped off civilians, the civilians, and they went into the compound pretty quickly. It was right there. Main gate, open up, go in. Um, and so I never, I'll never forget this. We're, we're parked in three trucks in front of the main gate to the compound. And I look to the left and I see a massive mob of hundreds of people coming up this main thoroughfare toward the compound. Like I said, there's a, there's a big um, traffic circle, mm-hmm. right? Governor's compound and this big old road. And I look over and there's just hundreds of people coming up. It kind of reminds me of that, uh, that scene in 300 when the guy makes a joke about um, fighting in the shade or in the rain. Mm-hmm. Because I'm in the gun truck and in the turret and I look over there and there's hundreds of people and I look up and it's fucking rocks. Just hundreds of rocks coming at me and I drop down in the turret. I get down a little bit and just pop, 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 right? And then when I get back up and then I start hearing the, the plinking on the side of the, the armor where I was in the RG-31. Uh, sorry, taking the either shotgun fire or some AK fire. Um, yeah, we were there. We had to move from that location dead on. We went up a side road and then turned our vehicles around to kind of provide cover of the compound. So we had a, a team in, in the compound. It was high wall. 
as the PSD with the civilians, but so we provided security on the outside. And we were there for a few hours. Wow. Just keeping people away from the governor's compound because they actually wound up ripping off like the, uh, the gate to the driveway. They almost got in. Um, so my PL and some of his team was in the driveway just smoking people as they tried to enter. Because if they got in, they were going to kill everybody. They were going to drag bodies out. Wow. Were they, uh, what, what, were they protesting or what was going on? Well, it was, a, it was, there were agitators. It was, a, it was a mix of both. It turned out that there was, there was Taliban provoking the crowd mm. to kind of expel us from the country. And they, and they were saying that the local leader was, you know, uh, corrupt and, you know, bought by us, you know, the U.S. And he was a puppet and everyone is a puppet, you know. So they wanted to just take him out and kill him. Oh. So, you know, by second order of effect, we had to protect him because our civilians were in there too. And they were our, our principals were in there. That's scary. And, and so, and this is at the time when there was only 13 yeah, was of these guys. And you're attached to what, what, what unit did you say? You were attached to some, you were attached to. Uh... So we were, we were living on a Korean PRT. Okay. Right. And so the Koreans had a security force and they had civilians that would go on meetings too, but they weren't with us on this one. Um, not to mention that, you know, hoping we created an international incident here, but the Koreans really wouldn't engage anyone anyway. Like if we were out and we took, took contact, they would just pop smoke. Really? Yeah. They wouldn't stay. And from what I remember hearing is that they, they weren't authorized to engage They you know, like to, to return fire. Like if we were going to be on the fob and we we're taking indirect fire, they, they couldn't just return fire. Like even if you saw where it was coming from, we would take not just like indirect fire, we would take direct fire for rockets, RPGs, and we'd be ready to go. And, but they just would return fire because they'd have to, their command structure was such that they'd have to call back to Korea to get permission to make decisions in Afghanistan. Wow. It was bad. And it wasn't, it wasn't the, the soldiers fault. Cause I remember them, like we come back off a mission, you know, smoked what, you know, vehicles covered in, in, you know, pockmarks from rounds or whatever. And they'd look at us like loggingly. They'd be like, oh, what did you guys do? Where were you? What happened? You know, they wanted to go out there and they wanted to get some, but uh, they just weren't being allowed to. So we were, yeah, we were there for a couple hours um, before any QRF made it up the road to us from, uh, like, I think, I think they rolled out of Kabul. Wow. Yeah. We, Just 13 of you guys. That's scary, man. A, a mob of, uh, you know, hundreds of Afghans just mixed in with Taliban and stuff. Just, with only 13, like, I, I feel like it, it could just take you guys out. Like, not, not. If, if, I think if we were laying down the, an appropriate level of suppressive fire, mm. um, or if anybody among them had just said, let's go. You know, if they had really just 100% committed, yeah, we'd, we'd have been all done. We wouldn't have been able to, to repel them. Wow. So that lasted a couple of hours and you guys got out of that situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny too. When I was, I was again in the truck and you hear, um, air, air assets coming in, right? Um, mm -hmm. not fast movers, you know, rotary, but I mean, all right, there's choppers coming in. Um, and then not seeing Apache. <laughs> You know, yeah. it was surveillance, you know, surveillance, uh, choppers coming in to kind of get a, a view of what's taking place. So they were rotor, they were, you know, we could see them circling around and we were like, all right, they're calling, they're watching and they're calling for help. But, uh, by the time QRF made its way up the road, uh, a lot of the crowd had been dispersed and, and I think we, we already had been packing up and getting ready to, to roll out. We were able to get our, our principals back out and load them back on the vehicles. Anybody get seriously injured from you guys from that? No, of our guys, not one. Good. That's great. Not one. Funny story with my PL. I remember being in my truck. I was in, in the turret, right? And I'm just working. And uh, there's a side gate to the compound right here and a bunch of T-walls that lead down to the traffic circle. And he comes out that side gate and he's talking to us about getting ready to bring people out. Um, he had to work, actually the, the, that side gate had a padlock on it on the inside. He didn't have the key. So I remember seeing him there trying to get that padlock open and like shooting it open and stuff. And like, it was a movie that they don't always open. Like, yeah. 
Um, but he comes up, he finally comes out, comes along the T wall, he's looking up at me. And he's saying, All right, just keep the press of fire. But he, he takes his hand, he points to me, he starts pointing down there, and then I see his hand go. But I, I thought his hand got fucking blown off. And he had his gloves on, right? You know, all that time he's talking about your PPE, man. Yeah. He had his gloves on, and it wasn't actually a, a, a dead hit for a round. It was like either um, 7.62 or like a piece of like a, a shotgun round, like a pellet, mm-hmm. and hit the T wall and hit him right in the palm of his hand. Wow. And that was the extent of the injury. He still has it to this day. Really? We got really lucky. Yeah. So I was supposed to be a 13 Fox and Ford Observer. <clears throat> and when you read the description of that, you're basically part of a fire section. You go out and, you know, you create your sector sketches and you're the guy who's supposed to call in artillery. That's what a forward observer's job is supposed to be. There's no artillery pieces up there. There's nothing that can reach out 20, 30, 40 miles for us, right? So they didn't need FOs. It's part of the MTO, part of the unit structure to have them, but we didn't have a job to do and... We didn't have mortars. We didn't have 60 mic mortars, which are, those are direct lay anyway. So we wound up infantrymen. We know, hey, you know, we had a couple of MPs with us. We had the, the 13 Foxes, the four observers, a couple of signal guys and a couple of infantry Joes. Um, but we were all across the board. Hey, you're infantry now. Go forth and do great things. <laughs> yeah. It seems to happen a lot to a lot of guys, man. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, I know you're this job, but you know, I guess in the army they say everybody's a soldier first, right? Yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I usually ask this before we get into the military service, Umar. But um, where'd you grow up? So I grew up in in a little town in Massachusetts called Southbridge. Okay. Yeah, my parents moved. I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, both my parents are from Puerto Rico. They moved when I was really small to Southbridge to kind of get away from the, from the city. Uh, two sisters born in Southbridge also, younger sisters. Raised there, man. I was raised Muslim, so my father and my parents had converted to Islam, you know, years ago, probably just before I was born, maybe just after. Uh, obviously going to know, fight a war in a country that's primarily Muslim. I wouldn't say it affected my decision-making because... I understand that a lot of the a lot of people over there doing bad things to me, those aren't Muslims. I was raised on on the book. I know the book. As a matter of fact, I probably knew the book more than most of the people over there. Because uh, many uh many of the locals they can't read it. They're being told what it says and what to believe and how to believe and and there's a lot of carryover carryover that's tribalism, it's cultural generational and a lot of tribalism gets kind of woven through the context and then they think all of that is Islam and no one's ever read the book or try to figure it out and you know even though I don't practice I understand that religion books across all across all of them are are flawed because someone's got to write that stuff down so my son's name is Jabril 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 is that my middle name Jabril Umar Arasia okay my boy is my only son, so I have uh, uh, oh, my oldest daughter is 28. I had, Jabril had a twin. twin oh, really? Right, so uh, Jabril and Maya, his sister is Maya. Okay. And then my daughter Vivian, who's 25, and I have a 13-year-old daughter as well. Big family. Wow. But he, was, he was my only son. He was uh, a lot like me growing up. You know, just introverted. You know, I've heard the word aloof being used with reference to me. And then so when he was that way, I figured, well, he's he's like his dad. He's just kind of independent and introverted and aloof and made a lot of his own choices. He was a great brother. Yeah. Great brother. He spent a lot of time taking care of his sisters, particularly the baby sister. Really? After, you know, when she was... I have so many pictures and so many memories of him because uh, I was separated from his mom. You know, they grew up in a split household and it was the classic situation where they got to see dad on the weekends and stuff, right? So um, the three of them, Rihanna, Maya, and Jabril, um, 
I saw them all the time. I never, I never didn't see them. Oh. But when they were old enough, they started to come live with me. Jabril come to live with me, I think, midway through high school. And uh, he was still, it wasn't any problems. This is after Afghanistan and everything. But he was a quiet kid, but he lived with us. And so oftentimes we'd leave him with his little sister, you know, or both of his little sisters. But yeah, he would take care, like the kind of thing where you didn't know he was paying attention, but he was. Yeah. You know, I've got stories. Like there was sometimes that I remember seeing him, because uh, he was obsessed with video games. This kid played video games all the time. So he'd be sitting in the living room, playing video game, and seemingly completely tunnel vision on the game. And his little sister, Lilu, would be crawling around the house, playing around, and uh, she'd start wandering upstairs, and I'd see him. I didn't even know if he was paying attention. Uh, put it down, go around, get her, bring her back down, stick her like in a box or in a, uh, like a, a laundry basket. <laughs> you know? And uh, go right back to playing. Yeah. He was always paying attention. We've got pictures of, of him. Uh, and it's actually when I was deployed, I, I didn't see it until I got back. I got, there's pictures of him when she's a little baby and he's holding her. My wife was telling me stories um, about one time she was exhausted. And he got up in the morning and he, like, he got her taken care of, the baby, all by himself without any prompting. Wow. His little sister, and she was maybe a year old at the time. How old was he? 10. Wow. Wow. Just a good kid, very conscientious, and, and ultimately, as quiet as he was, he was very sensitive. Was he really close to the uh, his twin sister? Yeah, yeah, they were close. I mean, they butted heads because that's you know they're really, you know, they they boy and a girl and they're twins and they were in each other's business all the time and goes to the same school. So yeah, they butted heads, but they were actually really close. It's the same kind of thing where you have a sibling and you love them and you care for them, but you don't let them know that you love them, care for yeah. them. You show I, them with tough love. Yeah, you know, I think that's kind of what it was for him. If she needed him, if anything came up, he was there. But other than that, he wasn't running around giving hugs and stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, when you when you were uh, deployed um, and overseas, did you communicate with with him and and your kids? Did you yeah. Just do as that? often as possible. A lot of times, I'd send Facebook messages through. Okay. Um, because it would be like when we got back to the fob, and I'd hop onto a computer for a little bit, and sometimes I'd be able to um with Skype. You know, Skype was really big, so I Skyped the family, but the time difference made it a little tough, you know, so I talked to the wife, and if someone was up, I could talk to them, but most of the time, I'd send, be sending a message back and forth a little bit here and there. My wife is dope, man. Yeah. I think a lot of us who deploy, we don't really realize how dope your wives are until you're gone. Absolutely. Dude, she, um, so these are, these are her stepkids. Okay. Okay. And when I was gone, like... We were together a, a, a long time first, and you know, every weekend we'd go get them as a family. She embraced my kids like they were hers, right? That's awesome. That's great. A lot of women don't do that. But then while I was gone, she'd still go get the kids. Wow. Like almost without fail. She picked them up and took them out and, and took care of them, and she was struggling. I didn't, all those things that, you know, I got my struggles over there. And she knows it, so she doesn't tell me nothing. Mm. But we had just started a business for her before I left. Literally, I spent the last month before I shipped out um, working on a salon for her, refurbishing it inside, getting it ready for her to go. And she opened for business the month before I left. Right. So she, so here she is at home, starting a new business, a salon in the city you know, and then raising kids, picking up my kids on the weekend. And so it turns out that as you, as what happens with a new business is you struggle, you don't make a lot of money first. And so she was, she was struggling to make ends meet. She was struggling to feed the kids and she found a way all the time. Wow. She loved them. She loved them. They're her kids to this yeah. day. She says they're, she's, they're her kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. You talking about how uh, 
she wouldn't tell you how stressed she was at home because she already knew you were dealing with your own stressors where you were. Uh, that's, that's, that's a great wife, man. She didn't throw me nothing. Even when we, when I got home for a while, it didn't just, like, it just came out in conversation like a year later or something. It was like, yeah. you know, I was like, what? Right. You didn't have money. You were buying ramen to feed the kids. Wow. Dude, that brings me to tears. Or thing. Yeah. It's hard. So, um, talk to me about where you were, what you were doing and how you received the news about your son. Um, you know, I don't think people know. No. Ah. So in 2019, I got a new job, right? I was working at the battalion level as a assistant operations training guy, just basically planning for training. And I had interviewed for and got for got a position at a military police unit as like the operations and administrative NCO, the E seven position. So previous to that, you know, I have a back injury that made it hard for me to go to school. So I had a profile. I couldn't. So my my career progression had been kind of stagnant. You know, you can't go to schools in your army if you have a temporary profile. That took a long time. Long story short, so I get the new job. <clears throat> I'm good to go, and I have a whole bunch of schools that I got to knock out. Right? I haven't been to like my NCO uh, leadership school. You know, in the army, it's BLC, ALC, and SLC. Right? And plus, I had to do an MOS reclass to military police. Right? So I got I get this new job in in 2019. I get there in June, and the company's activated. At the MP company in Massachusetts, the battalion, get activated all the time, whether it's for civil disturbance or emergency missions, and there's always some, some type of support. So our op tempo is crazy. So I get there, and uh, I immediately start knocking out schools. So going back to like the parry, and I'll, and I'll get to your question, going back to my wife, I started a rotation there where I was going away for a month at a time for almost every, almost every other month. Out and back, out and back. So I go to ALC, I go to reclass. Um, I come back and do, uh, yeah, I go to SLC. So I was in the senior leader course in March of 2020. And that course is, it's a month long, it's two phases, two two week phases. So I'm out to dinner uh, with the guys in the class because we com just graduated or completed the first first phase. No problems. We're out to dinner. Me and a buddy are out and I get a phone call. I get a phone call from my wife. I pick it up. I'm like, hey, honey. She says, I need you to go someplace where you can where you can hear me and you can talk. And you know, you know, that tone. So my buddy, I get up and I go outside to the parking lot. And uh, she says, Umar, uh, I need you to, can you sit down? I said, no, just tell me. She says, Jabril is dead. And I just, I couldn't believe it. It's all the classic stuff. No, wait, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? What do you mean he's dead? What happened? They say he killed himself. <laughs> Forget it. No, no fucking way. Um, and um, in my frustration, she tells me, I need to please try and stay calm. He's dead. We don't, they say he killed himself. We don't know why. We don't know what's going on. And uh, I lose it for a minute or two, but then my, you know, my NCO mind kicks in. I'm like, okay. We need to get, I, I need to get notification. I need you to send a Red Cross message, an emergency Red Cross message. I got to go home. I go back in and I tell my buddy, he sees my face. He stands right up. He's like, I got to go right now. People in the restaurant are like, oh shit, what's going on there? He doesn't wait. He's like, go out to the car. I'll be right out. He takes care of the bill. He meets me and he says, what's going on? I told him, dude, my son's dead. 
<laughs> he opens the door, grabs me, and throws me in. We start heading back to the base. I don't even know how long it took. Um, he was on the phone on on the way back. We get back to the barracks, and all the guys are there. You know, to include you know one of the instructors, they're there. So they bring me in. They start helping me. They get my phone calls. They tell me what I need to do. I talk to the instructor. They were like, all right, pack your, you know, pack your stuff. We got to try and get you out of here. Making phone calls. One of my buddies, I was actually there with another um, NCO from my company. Um, on, he was already in E7. He gets on the phone to get a flight, an emergency flight back. The other guys, they pack up all my stuff for me, and they stay with me the entire time, you know. It was so hard to get, a, you know, to try and call people and plan for logistical support in the plan. I, I, I couldn't really, couldn't really process my way through that. Um, I can't imagine. And I wasn't home. I was at Fort Knox. It was bad, man. It because I didn't get home until three o'clock the next day. Oh wow! So you gotta wait all that to wait. I had the, the flight wasn't until like seven or nine the next morning. And they stood with you all the way till you got into your flight? They they stood with me all night until I got in the van with the instructor and the driver who took me to the airport. They packed all my stuff for me. I didn't, I remember touching any of my stuff. This is the way it is, man. You take care of your brothers. Yeah. They took care of me the entire time. But that flight home, man. That trip home was, I've seen a lot of shit. Obviously, when you see stuff, it's pretty horrible, and you think it's probably the worst thing you've, you've experienced in your life, but it's not you. Hello. Bailing. Uh, that was definitely the worst day. Uh, what? And so, your son's in the Navy at this time when yeah. this happened, right? So he signed up to go to the Navy. Um, when did he sign up to go to the Navy? My son signed up right out, of, right out of high school. Okay. I remember him coming to me telling me he was going to go to the Navy. I was caught by surprise because one of the things that my son, like my son liked to cook, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. he liked to bake. I thought he was going to go to culinary school, like all the way through high school. Right. If he wasn't playing video games, you could probably find him in the kitchen. Wow. To the point where like, my wife bought him an apron and stuff, you know. Wow. He liked to cook. Yeah. Then he comes and tells me he wants to join the Navy. I'm like, okay, son, whatever you want. You know, have you thought about it? Do you know what's going on? He had already spoken to a recruiter. He wanted to go into SWIC, like a special warcraft, like boat operator guys, you know, the guys who bring in the, the boats. Yeah. Uh, initially. Then I, you know, I said, okay, that's if that's what you want to do, you know, have you thought about how long you want to do that for? Coming from combat arms, I was like, you know, I mean, you can, if you do a career in the Navy, that'll work out fine, but it's kind of tough to figure out maybe if you don't want to do it anymore, how that translates to the world. And I gave him, I didn't argue with him, whatever you want, and we're good, you know, because it's an impressive thing to want to join the military at all. I wasn't going to try and talk him out of it. And I've seen the benefits, you know, being in the military helped me out a lot. I don't know where I'd be life-wise if I didn't have the benefits and regardless of the struggles. So he, uh, he did change and decided he wanted to go into, uh, nuclear, nuclear engines, nuclear motors, and submarines. I was like, all right, that's cool. I'm pretty sure you can do something about that. We look it up and people who come out, it's a piece. So people would go into the Navy, get all the education and schooling, complete their first like enlistment, come out and make like 150, 160K. Wow. Doing the nuclear gig. Nuclear stuff at like power plants and things like that. Wow. Or working on the boats as civilians. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right. <laughs> because if you can get through the school, you're going to be set regardless. Mm -hmm. He goes in right out of high school, 
And that was long. I remember, so we went to see him graduate basic in Chicago. Um, and then he went to the school, the new school in Virginia, or the South Carolina. I can't remember now. Um, but he wound up stationed in Virginia afterward. And that was like two years of school, man. Wow. It was long and it was stressful. We went to see him once, uh, my wife and I were on vacation down there and my little one. And then we took him out for a little bit, we took him and a friend out for, for dinner and we're talking. I remember him, so we're sitting at dinner and just talking, catching up on things. And I don't know anything about that nuclear stuff. It was cool to me. I'm asking him, how does it work? You know, what do they do? You know, there's like rods and stuff. He was like, yeah, you know, I know how to you know, work on all that stuff. I know how to monitor all this and that. And he said, so what do they do with like the material and stuff on the boat? He's like, I can't really talk about it. Dang. And I'm like, well, I mean, you can tell me, <laughs> right? He's like, I got a clearance. He says, no, I can't. I can't. He says, your clearance isn't high enough. <laughs> And I'm sitting there and I have this revelation. Like, wow, my 21-year-old son has a higher clearance than I right now. Wow. But he had like a top secret? Yeah, he had a TS. He had to, to have wow. access to, it wasn't just the machinery, but you know how TMs and FMs, like the books. Mm. If you have access to the information about stuff, how it works, that's the sensitive stuff. Wow. And so, yeah, he couldn't talk about a bunch of that stuff with me and, or he just didn't want to, I don't know. But he made it clear that he wasn't going to tell me. <laughs> and we moved on with the conversation. But that was one of those little eye-opening moments. Like, wow, all right. <laughs> He's like, sorry, Pop. Yeah. It's classified. Your, your clearance is not as high as mine. <laughs> Roger that. Did he talk to you about how, like, whether he was enjoying his service in the Navy? Was he having a good time? or A little bit. So here's the thing about Jabril. Um, and one of the problems and one of the things that, that sit with me the most is that because he was so much like me growing up, I didn't push him hard. I didn't push him hard enough, you know, because he was introverted. He was aloof and not a communicative person. Like anyone who knew him said that if you sat next to him and tried to have a conversation, it was very hard because he wouldn't give you much. You know, hey, how was your day? You know, what you got going on? It's good. Yeah, just playing games. In a one-word, two-word answers all the time, it's very hard to engage him in in any type of conversation that let you know how he was, um, unless you got him talking about video games or something like that. Um, so once he joined the Navy, we didn't communicate a lot. Months and months and months would go by, and I called, you know, and as a parent, it's tough to kind of figure out how much is too much. And right, this is a young person on their own. You got to kind of let them figure out how to be a, a grown up. You know, can't be all up in their business all the time. But I call, you know, I called every couple of weeks, if not, you know, at first every couple of weeks or every month. And I'd leave a voicemail because he hardly ever replied. We never replied. Every once in a, every once in a while, I'd catch him, he'd pick up. Yeah. I mean, we'd have a conversation. So now you're in that tough place where you're like, do I berate him for not communicating? Or do I just talk to him because I got him on the phone? What's the right answer to that? I I I totally resonate. What year was he born? Uh, Ninety five. Okay, I have two sons, and the way you're describing him, it sounds like you're describing my two boys, and they're ninety six and ninety eight. Um, same thing, you know. Uh, ask a question, very short answers, and then if you get on their back about why did you call, why did you come here, it turns into a not so productive, you know, for a conversation. <laughs> and it hurts. And then you might put them in a position where they just withdraw more. And that was always a delicate line. He's already at distance. So normally if I had him on the, on the phone, we would talk and talk to his mom a little bit. And I just say, Hey son, you know, I don't, I don't need a 45 minute conversation with you. You know, I love you. You know that we love you, right? Yeah. All right. All I need every once in a while is to know that you're okay. If I text you, literally all you get is text back is I'm good if you want. Right. So that's kind of the way we had it for a long time. And 
Uh, but he, for most of the time, he just he wouldn't communicate. And so then that's the guilt, right? And that's me trying now this is me trying to figure out was that was that the sign? Well, because you 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 still have really no idea why he took his life, right? Um there he didn't write there's no note or anything. No note after the investigation. So to back it up, he he gave us a phone call saying that he needed his birth certificate or some type of I think it was his birth certificates in like July because he was going to deploy in September or something like that. So, or August. So we kind of jumped through our butt to get him the paperwork he needs. I think it was like a flash deployment and he was going, he was assigned to the, the Boise. Um, so he called us for that and we got it for him and we sent it to him. A little bit of conversation before that, he went on a, on a six month deployment, I think. It was out and see if, if they call him deployments. Um, when he was stationed in, in Norfolk, he bought a house off post. Cause I think, I guess they don't have like on, on post housing. Everyone lives off post, but he bought a house. He won his deployment. I think he had, he had a housemate. He came back and, uh, a month after coming back, he took his life. Wow. A month. All investigation. The civilian detectives, uh, naval CIS investigation, you know, scrubbed computers, scrubbed phones. As of now, there's, there's no indication as to why, except that he might have had some financial trouble with his house. But that's also difficult. It's hard thing, you know, it's hard. Parents don't want to believe it anyway, right? You don't want to believe that someone you love would do that when they know that you love them. Why would you do that? You know, I love you. Why would you do that? That's a lot of therapy, <laughs> a lot of therapy, a lot of unpacking. Um, but yeah, it's, we, we were never a money household, you know, like we never stressed about money. We never stressed about not having money. Like we didn't let the kids know if we were struggling or not, but it wasn't a thing not to have any. We always provided and we never made our kids feel like they were failures if they didn't succeed at things. And you start trying to add up all the, as many signs as possible, try and figure out what did I do or what didn't I do, right? What, in what way did I not provide my child with what they needed to work through whatever they're going through. That's, and that's like the biggest thing. It's the hardest thing to work through because it, it, the answer often is it had nothing to do with you. Right. How, um, how are your daughters doing? They're, everyone struggles in their own way. My oldest, I think, is having the hardest time. Um, his twin sister is struggling too, but she has two sons. I have grandkids, two grandkids. And I think because she focused on them, she can focus on them. They have uh, medical issues that require a lot of time and effort also. But that's where her energy and her emotional um, focus has been and some emotional pain, which leads to the other problem. And I'm, wor I'm worried about her because I know for a fact that she had really dealt with the loss of her brother. She hasn't addressed it at, at hardly at all because she just can't. She's basically a single mom with two boys who have medical problems. Right? Yeah. So that is fairly recent, right? 2020. 2020. So here we are going on three years later. My oldest is just starting to get to a point where she can kind of talk about it more. Um, How's your wife and, 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 and his mom? So let me tell you this story. Left out of the notification part of the story. So in, in 2019, my wife gets diagnosed with 
or they find what they think is thyroid cancer. So she goes through biopsies and so forth and so on, and they determine they have to go in and have to get it, take it out. When is the surgery scheduled for? March 11th. And my wife, you know, being the teammate that she is, she says, you got to go to school still. You got to go. Your career has been on hold. You need this for your job. And that's us, right? My job, my ability to help kind of provide and support the household, that's, that's not me. That's us. And she says, you got to go. So we set up so that her sister can come stay with, with her for the week while I'm gone because I'm at, I'm at my, my SLC. So her sister is there with her and uh, our two daughters, the youngest and the second, the youngest, Vivian and, and Lila. Uh, she goes into surgery on the morning of March 11th, has her thyroid removed, comes home, still trying to shake off the drugs, um, and is not supposed to talk. Lay there, relax, drink fluids, and recover. And she gets a phone call at like 4.30 from the detective in Norfolk, who... By the way, this is before we got the, the notification from the Navy. Wow. It took the Navy a long time to officially notify. Um, so the detective called us thinking that we probably had been notified by now. She called the house and she told my wife that our son was dead. Mm -hmm. So my wife having just come out of surgery, had to figure out how to call me. Now, she raised that boy, you know, to this day, and she had always, you know, she doesn't have any sons, that's our son. And then she had to figure out how to call me and tell her, tell me that my son was gone. Huh. Oh, uh, I couldn't imagine what was going through her mind like all the emotions you know just working herself up to pick up the phone and call you like i i just can't even fathom it you know yeah bro oh. a tough woman tough woman because i know you know she said she was kind of in hysterics for a little bit and now her two daughters are there right mm -hmm. they're going through it She's got to get herself in control, help get the girls in control, and calm herself enough to give me the call. Women are strong species, man. Right? They're 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 just they're they got a lot of strength. Lady, wow. Well, Umar, we're gonna wrap it up. Um, any last words? You know, I thought I had it rough, you know, coming back from deployment and seeing some horrible, some horrible stuff over there and it sits with you and sometimes it wakes you up or you remember it and it's, it's, it, it can be intrusive, but you can get through it. You can kind of work your way through it. I don't know what my son was dealing with. I don't know. All I know, and this is kind of, I had to talk to somebody. If you're out there and you're hurting, for whatever reason, you got to talk to people, man. And if it's not someone who's professional, find someone who will listen. But really, it's scary to put yourself out there because you got to know you're not, you're not balanced that it's not normal to go through life not feeling joy, um, right? And someone who would choose to take their own life is at a point where they're not feeling joy anymore. That I understand. I understand what it's like to not feel joy. I don't understand what it's like to never, ever feel it. And I think that's probably where my son was, where he just never felt joy. And one of the things that I was told by a really good therapist was like, 
imagine that feeling that you got when you find out your son was gone, that hollow feeling. Not and and it never going away, no matter what. You wake up that way, you go to sleep that way every single day. Hell. And then what would you what would you want to do? How would you feel about life? And then he put it on me. And the last thing I'll say is he put it on me. So listen, if your son, if your son had some type of disease that had him in pain all day and all night of every single day, and he wasn't going to live and he was never going to get better from it, would you want his pain to continue? And this isn't to justify what happened because there's a way to get better from that. But from his point of view, there wasn't. And for me to try and go on, I had to realize that he was in a lot of pain and didn't know how to make it stop. Well, so that's the only way I can try to be in a position where I'm not tearing myself up every day, you know, because it really wasn't about whether I did something wrong as a parent. He had a lot of love. He was really, really loved by everyone in his family. So. He was just hurting and couldn't take it anymore. So if you're out there and you're hurting and you're not feeling joy, there's a way to fix that. There's a way to work on that so you can get up in the morning and see how precious life is and how much the love of the people around you, that even if they're not blood, mm-hmm. there are people out there who's gonna, who are going to miss you when you're gone. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks, Umar. Uh Appreciate you coming on and taking the seat and having the courage to share about your son, man. Um, and uh, you know, we'll we'll do we'll do our best to to contribute to keeping uh, your son's memory alive here at Urban Valor, man. So, um, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for letting me come out and talk about this for a while. Yeah, our pleasure, brother. Push it to the limit, I can't go no more. Red light, no way I'm coming back home. Long dirt road, all on my own. I'ma be the greatest, write my name in the stone. Write my name in the stone. Yeah, I'm coming back.